Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, August 23rd, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Eero. My day job is creating a fish identification tool, but I like doing this podcast just for the halibut. Oh, nice. Gotcha. Yep, you did. Got it out of the way. We're talking about Pacific halibut today, and our guest is Claude Dykstra, who's a research biologist with the International Pacific Halibut Commission. You ready to talk about halibut with us? You bet. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I was thinking this morning, you know, we often see fish on our plate, and we're familiar like with what the filet looks like. Halibut are really nice white meat, but these fish are actually super cool looking in real life, and we were hoping you could give us a, just a description about what they look like in person. Yeah, so Pacific halibut are a large flatfish that is a member of the family Pleuronectidae, which means side swimmer. So these are animals that, as they develop, they actually start off looking like a pretty normal fish. They have eyes on both sides of their head as larvae. And by about six months, those eyes start to migrate and complete their migration to one side of the head. And the animal has its orientation kind of flat with a white underside and a dark upper side. The eyes go to the top side and they're in dark in coloration, so they blend in with the bottom. They can become very, very large. Uh, The largest Pacific halibut are up in the eight-foot range, and those animals are somewhere in the the 500-pound range or 230 kilos. The spawning happens in deep waters off the continental shelf, and the eggs and larvae are slightly negatively buoyant, so they they don't float all the way to the surface. They kind of float partway up in the water column. And the currents sweep them north and west, typically, through Alaska, through the Gulf of Alaska and up into the Bering Sea. They go through that metamorphosis as they're feeding on zooplankton and things like that. So that the eye migrates and then they settle down at about six months into shallow bays all along the coast. And they then begin what's known as a counter-migration. So as the animals start to grow, they start to migrate east and south which kind of counteracts that drift that they're subject to when they're very young. They can be caught very deep, 4,000 feet of water or 1.2 kilometers down or 1,200 meters. But more typically, you would find them in the summer times between like 90 feet and 900 feet. They're kind of a cool like mottled color, right? I mean, they've got kind of like almost little brown and whitish spots and just a really neat coloration kind of matches the bottom. Yeah, they blend in very well to the bottom and you'll see kind of different, slightly different color morphs depending how shallow they've been living and what kind of bottom they've been on. From above, they blend in very well, but from underneath, they're bright white, which at first is kind of counterintuitive. It's like, why is there no coloration really on the bottom side? And if you imagine that you were a predator and an animal, one of these animals swam above you with the bright surface water, they would blend right into that bright surface water up above. So that's why they have that dual coloration. How much are they actually able to see down there on the bottom of the ocean? It's a good question. I'm actually not that familiar with how much they can see down there. We do know that they obviously do quite well at the depths that they're living at. They're known to eat cod, sablefish, rockfish, uh, sculpin, other flatfish as they get larger, even salmon. They're obviously able to eat at those depths, possibly due to the configuration of their eyes, but more likely due to 
some of the photo sensors in their eyes. And I know there's some folks at National Marine Fisheries who are studying their eye kind of pigments and what they can and cannot pick up as far as light goes. But they're dual colored for a reason, and they're likely coming off the bottom a lot more than we think. Do halibut have a preferred side? Do they all, the eyes always migrate over to the right side or the left side, or does it uh, depend on the individual? They're part of the family Pleuronectidae, which is considered to be right-eyed flounders. So the majority of these Pacific halibut will have their eyes on the right-hand side, but about one in every 10,000 has its eye migrate to the left-hand side. So every once in a while, we're so used to handling them a certain way when we're sampling them that we'll get one that's facing the wrong way and it'll totally mess us up. But they're pretty rare. (laughs) They're called sinestral halibut and they simply have their eye on the opposite side of the body and everything on them is in reverse. Wow. So the whole internal organs and everything, everything's all mixed up in them. It's it's essentially a mirror image of the right-sided one. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's mixed up, but it, it is a mirror image. Yep. That's cool. Speaking of that white coloration on the underside, they've got kind of a unique aspect about their tail, right? With their markings. Can you speak to, to that a little bit? So we do a lot of research on these fish at the Halibut Commission. And we've noticed over time that a lot of the fish have what we would call modeling on the white side of the tail itself. So there's little blotches and dots and dashes and strange shapes on the, on the white side of the tail. And we kind of started wondering if that could be used as a unique tag to identify the animal and to track it. So this is something that's being done in other wildlife species. Uh, People are identifying zebras or giraffes through camera imagery. They do it with whales as well, looking at unique kind of fingerprints of markings. So those markings need to have two features. One is they have to be unique to an individual. And secondly, they need to have longevity. So as that animal grows and changes shape, maybe grows in length or girth, those kind of patterns need to stay relatively the same shape and coloration as that animal grows. So we did a pilot study about five or six years ago now. We had a summer intern in and they looked at fish on some of our research cruises and they were able to use some software to individually identify fish through those tail markings. And we now have an effort to look into the second component on the longevity and how well those patterns stay stable. Each summer we tag a bunch of fish that say tail mark study, please take a picture of the tail of this fish. So if any uh, fishers out there catch one of these fish, we're asking that you flip it over and take an image of the white side of the tail and record the length of the animal and hopefully uh, collect the otoliths and send all that data into us as part of that study. You mentioned otoliths. What exactly are those and how to use information from that structure that's inside the fish? Yeah, so otoliths are a small bone that is in the ear area of the halibut. They use them as a balance indicator. The bone sits in a fluid-filled sac that has little hairs in it, and it allows the animal to tell whether it's upright or upside down. And as halibut grow, they tend to feed a lot during the summer and have quick growth, and then they tend to slow down in the wintertime when there's less feed around. And that translates to rings, kind of density rings on that otolith structure. And we go out and collect as part of our fishery independent set line survey every year, we collect tens of thousands of these otoliths from essentially California all the way out to the Russian border. And we also collect otoliths from the commercial fleet. So animals that are being brought in from the commercial landings, we extract them and we count the rings on these things, very similar to growth rings on a tree. We have three or four staff here at our agency 
that that's their job. They, they sit on a microscope all day long and count rings on these fish. It gives us an idea of the age structure of the stock. And we also tie the age to the size of the fish. And it tells us some things about how quickly animals are growing or not growing, if that's happening regionally. And it it gives us kind of clues to look at for that. And just for reference, the oldest halibut that we've ever caught, both male or female, are 50 years old. Can you tell us a little bit about how are they feeding? What are they feeding on? Just a little bit about their behavior. Yeah, so... Halibut are a species that do not have a swim bladder. So some rockfish use a swim bladder to maintain their buoyancy at different depths. Halibut don't need that. They kind of move up and down just by swimming up and down in the water column. Their flat shape allows them to catch currents and move quickly with that, somewhat kite-like. And they are quite active in their feeding patterns. So like I mentioned, in the, in the, later in the summer when the salmon runs are going strong, Often folks will catch them with salmon in their stomachs. And it's hard to imagine a a halibut with an entire salmon in its stomach, but Mm -hmm. that does happen. We see them with rockfish in their stomachs with, you know, these large kind of bony protuberances distorting their tummies. And and we've also caught lots of them with octopus beaks in their stomach, like up to eight or nine octopus beaks, which are hard to digest and probably hard to pass out. So they digest oh, yeah. all the soft parts and they're left with these little hard bits uh, in their stomachs for periods of time. <laughs> so they're quite active feeders. We certainly, we've done some underwater video work with them that shows they'll often, they, they tend to swim upstream. So there's something that's causing scent and the scent is going downstream. The animal follows it upstream. You'll see them come into the video image that has a baited package that, that's trying to draw them in. They'll swim past it and then recognize they've overshot it and they'll circle back around and they'll come to it. But they'll also often lie on top of it and they won't take it or eat it until another halibut comes along and they decide, okay, I really need to take this thing and protect it. And we're not sure why they do that. We're not sure if they're kind of full and they're just like, okay, I got my next meal figured out and I'm just going to stick with it. But when there's competition, they decide to take it. But that's a common behavior that we see. And sometimes that leads to when there's fishing going on, the explanation why you get a kind of a body snagged fish. It's not super common, but it does happen. And people wonder why that's happening. And we suspect that's what's going on. Why they protect or, or cover the food up. Yeah, it's anybody's best guess. I, I suspect they're not currently starving and they're just kind of hoping that they can wait a while while they digest whatever's in their stomach right now before they eat it. Yeah, I like to do that when my kids are around. <laughs> yeah. Are there best practices? So say you catch a halibut, you're fishing maybe for a rockfish, you already have your limit. Are there best practices to release a halibut, number one? And then, yeah, I guess I want to know best practices bringing a halibut in the boat, just kind of that, you know, you, you have one on, what do you do with it once you get it on? Things to minimize injury. You know, there's different regulations about retention for these fish in the different management regions. So in Southeast Alaska, they have a one fish limit and they have to be inside a certain size limit. So less than 50 inches or greater than 72 inches. So if they're in that sandwich, you got to let them go. And so you would want to have some sort of measuring method where you can leave the animal in the water. Try not to, to lift it out of the water. They do best when the, you know, their, their body is fully supported by the density of the water. And if you could release them from the side of the vessel just through reversing the hook back out the way it came in, which is either through kind of 
creating a gentle shake. You're, you're lifting the, the, the fish up and you're either grabbing it by hand and reversing that hook out or you're dangling it, keeping pressure on the leader and shaking it off the hook. Anytime you take that fish up onto the boat, you're introducing some chance for added injury, whether that be not supporting its spine and causing some damage to its spine, or it gets frantic and it starts trying to swim and it starts beating itself all over the deck of your boat and it's getting bruised and injured. It's better to try to release them outside the the boat. But if you have to have them up on the boat to measure them or something like that, supporting them by that they're both their head and their tail at the same time is important and avoid sticking your fingers inside their gill cover. It's an easy way to lift them because they're slippery, but you're also directly damaging the apparatus that they breathe with. And so trying to avoid that, just a gentle hand under the head and a gentle hand kind of at the base of what we call the caudal peduncle or the, mm-hmm. the part right before the tail flares out is a good way to support them and minimize damage to the fish. Yeah. And they can be pretty powerful fish, those larger ones. I've Yeah. I mean... They Are can, there any safety safety tips for bringing them on board? Say so you're going to keep a larger individual. Like, how do you actually bring them on board safely? Yeah, that that's largely vessel and crew dependent. <laughs> <laughs> so the work we were doing out there, we were trying to to assess the injuries that fish are typically encountering in a charter recreational capture capture experience. So we're looking at how big the fish is both in length and weight, what's the fat level on board, what's the injury it typically sustains from the typical gear that's being used and in the typical release methods that are being used. And for some of those big fish, we were on one vessel at a Sitka that had a a door in the gunnel that we could simply open up. And as the surge on the sea worked, we would slide that fish right up. (laughs) We would cover its eyes so that if you cover their eyes with a wet towel, they will often calm down and stop flopping around. And a lot of fishers have been seriously injured by large halibut in the past where they start mm-hmm. bouncing around. And if you're on a rocking boat, they can, they can actually break your leg when they hit if you. Imagine a three, 400 pound animal slamming into your yeah. leg. And yeah. so people have had fatal accidents with halibut before that way. Oh wow! You know, how do you get a big one over the board when you don't have a, a door in the gunnel? That's a, an entire other operation. And you, you want to be pretty committed to the fact that you're going to be keeping that animal so that you're not a introducing harm to it and then releasing it uh, in some sort of damaged manner. And usually it takes several people with gaffs. And at, at that point, I mean, a gaff is also helping you control that animal. So a gaff's a large kind of metal hook that you use to help secure the head of the animal and, and bring it into the boat. Some people hog tie them. So they'll, they'll tie a, a rope to the mouth and tail so they can't flip-flop. Essentially, when they start bouncing like that, they're just simply trying to swim. That's how they swim in the water. And uh, on a crowded small deck that can, and with all the movement of the water, it can cause some dangerous situations. So I would just proceed with caution. I've heard some cases of people having rifles or some other firearm on board that they use to take, if they're planning to keep a large halibut, they'll try and shoot it in the head just to keep it from flopping around like that before they bring it on board too. Yes. Yeah. We, we've heard of that before too. And that's certainly a, a technique that can be used again better used in someone who's got some experience doing that. It's, it's easy to have an accident uh, while doing that on a rocking boat if you're not familiar with it. And if the animal suddenly bucks while you're about to do that, um, we've also heard stories of people putting holes in their boats or worse. So, hmm. Plus it lets other boats know where the big fish are. <laughs> Can you tell us anything about mushy halibut? 
Yeah. We've heard about mushy halibut from the industry. It comes and goes a little bit. And it's, I wouldn't say it's very common really, but it, it gets a lot of headlines when it does show up. So we're not sure what causes it. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game has a fish pathology lab who's looked at samples from them. And it, it's often noticeable when you catch the halibut more predominantly early in the spring. It's been seen a little bit more commonly around Cook Inlet. And you can often tell when you catch it that the halibut musculature from the outside is not as firm as you would expect it. The halibut are normally quite firm and muscular. And these ones are kind of squishy and their skin looks like it's sagging on them a little bit. There doesn't appear to be any particular disease or parasite that's causing the issue. There's some evidence on a kind of microscopic level that the animal may have been going through some sort of starvation event and is now recovering from that, but it's not a widespread thing. So it will get like in a bad year, we might get four or five reports of it. And then we'll go for several years where we don't hear about it. Apparently when you try to eat it, it really doesn't cook up well. It falls apart and it's got a lot of water in it and it's, it's not very appetizing. And most people who've attempted to cook it really didn't want to eat it. We're hoping to get a few more samples into the Alaska Department of Fish and Game Pathology Lab. So if you do get one, there's information on our website on what to do with it, www.iphc.int. And, you know, information on where you caught it, what you caught it on, any other observations about it. And if you could, if you could quickly freeze the whole fish and find a way to get it to the path lab, that would be great. Halibut's one of my favorite fish to eat, and I am not very well trained in cooking fish, but I'm able to do it with halibut, but <laughs> I'd like to talk to someone who's maybe a little bit more familiar with them. What, what's your favorite way to prepare this kind of fish? Eating halibut. What a wonderful thing. Yeah, so my preference is to have a fillet that has skin on it. The skin is a natural protector when you put your fish on the grill. I drizzle it with some sort of citrus juice lemon juice, lime juice, something like that. And then I add smoked sea salt, pepper, dill, and I drizzle it with olive oil. And that helps kind of keep the moisture in so you don't accidentally overdo your fish. Yeah. And then pop it on the grill for on medium high for, I don't know, eight minutes. That's about all you need. When it starts getting little bubbles of omega-3 fatty acids coming up to the surface, you know your fish is done and it doesn't take long. Yeah. And that's a perfect way to prepare it. Right on. That sounds delicious. Yeah. And you can overcook a halibut, or at least I have. <laughs> yeah. Olive oil is a kind of a key thing to, to allow you a little bit of grace there. Yeah. It prevents that moisture just from kind of going off into the smoke and steam of the grill. So the oil traps it. And it also keeps that smoky flavor that's coming up from the bottom. It'll cling to the, to the oil and help add to the flavor of the halibut overall. Yeah, we get a, a lot of halibut and we'll make curry. We eat a lot of pokey recently. That's pretty pretty good Nice as well. It's a, yeah, it's a pretty diverse fish in terms of what you can do with it. It's, it's quite tasty. Are there any messages you want to give folks to kind of take home about halibut fishing along the Pacific coast or these animals in general? I would say that right now the Pacific halibut fisheries at a good and healthy spot. We're seeing a healthy population and they're, the numbers are good. They're growing. 
we love to hear of concerns. If you're seeing something out there that is different than you've seen in the past with a halibut that you're catching, we love to, to know about it and be on top of it. If you catch a tag, remember that those tagged fish, they're not held against your quota if you're a quota fisherman, and they're not held against your bag limits if you're a recreational fisher. So it's an extra fish. So please uh, record its length, keep the tag, and if possible, take the otoliths out. We have instructions on our website on how to do that. Or if you're coming into one of our major ports, you can call the local Halibut Commission sampler and they'll come and help you with that. Those tags are super meaningful to us. And if you don't return them, we don't know that they were pulled out of the ocean and we can't do our science that we need to with them. Cool. Well, it's been great having you on the show. And we hope that everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish. Good luck halibut fishing. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>